The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from Brain MD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Superstar performer Jewel's soul-stirring music is the soundtrack of a generation. Her debut album is one of the best-selling in history and went 12 times platinum. She sung at the Super Bowl, the White House, and for the Pope. But her path to success was wrought with trauma. Jewel grew up in Alaska without running water, was raised by a physically abusive father and abandoned by her mother all before the age of eight. She left home at 15 and was homeless by 18. Against all odds, Jewel rose to stardom, yet was dealt another devastating blow when she discovered her mother stole millions of her hard-earned money. On this special episode of Navigating Narcissism, the one and only Jewel reveals the most challenging parts of her healing, the revelation that still makes her tear up, and the fascinating techniques she's used to help her emotional recovery. From Red Table Talk Podcasts and iHeartMedia, I'm Dr. Romani, and this is Navigating Narcissism. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, 
or their employees. Jewel, I have been following your journey for several years. Your experience is the kind that hits you like a bolt of lightning and stays with you. You have so much to offer the survivor community, so thank you so much for joining me. I was really struck by your unique upbringing. Your family had a long history of homesteading in Alaska. You grew up on hundreds of acres without running water. Can you give us a little insight into your childhood? Yeah, so there's a a good and a, a dark side, I think, to my family history. I was raised on that homestead by my dad. My daily life was varied. We did move a lot, but a lot of my childhood was on the homestead. And I think that that exposure to nature actually... My dad once said we were given the illness and the cure, and I Mm. I think that's very true. My dad has eight siblings, Mm. and they had such a, again, amazing childhood, but also kind of horrific. And I think the reason none of them have committed suicide, none of them are drug addicts, and don't get me wrong, we have issues, but it's kind of striking that you could have eight kids raised in this environment Mm. and that none of them went darker is, I think, a real testament to the land and how the land, for me personally, at least taught me to be human. Hmm. So let's talk about your dad then, because I've had the privilege of reading your book. Everyone should read Jewel's book, by the way. And I know that he experienced abuse growing up. And then some of that cycle continued to a certain degree. Can you talk a little bit about your father? Because it's a complicated story with your dad. My father's childhood was psychologically, physically and emotionally abusive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't know that, though, of course, growing up. And so all I knew was my dad. I know my mom left at eight. Suddenly I was being raised by my father. My father went from like a Mormon, like classic Mormon dad to drinking, smoking, and hitting me pretty much overnight. So my mom left. I had no idea why. I didn't know actually she left. I just assumed my dad took us. And my dad suddenly hitting us, yelling, drinking, mm. and smoking. So that was a radical shift. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, obviously having your world turned upside down. And we started singing in bars to make a living. Growing up in bars was not easy. I would have men put dimes in my hand and say, you know, call me when you're 16. You're going to be great to fuck when you're older. And so I just grew up in a wild environment, but I'm dyslexic. And for some reason, I think that causes me to see patterns and I'm very visual. Hmm. And what I was seeing was pain. I had a front row seat to pain. I was in pain. It was the most salient feature in my life. And what I was seeing in the bars and what I was seeing in my dad, I was like, oh, my gosh, we're all in pain. Mm-hmm. And I was watched how people dealt with it over the years. I saw drug use. I saw rage. I saw sex. I saw illicit behavior. And I think I had just been learning about oysters in school and that oysters have an irritant like a bit of sand and they make a pearl. And I was like, I have this irritant. I have this pain. But I'm not making a pearl. None of us are making pearls. Like, why don't we make pearls out of this? Instead, like the visual I saw was this hurt, this wound, and people would layer all these things to avoid it and to try and bury it. But by the end of it, they were consumed in a mountain of other distractions that caused more pain. And for anybody to face that after so many decades was quite difficult. You had to, like, deal with all this crap you've done and inflicted more pain on yourself, basically, just to go ahead and deal with this. And so to me, like, I remember saying pain, you know, what do I do with pain? I remember writing down, and I remember um, the quickest way is through. And mm-hmm. and to kind of promise myself that I would try and deal with my pain just out of a matter of practicality. But I didn't always know how to handle it. And so I tried to look to things that gave me relief. Writing gave me relief. It was very yeah. obvious that it did. Didn't take it away, but something about moving toward it 
helped. And I learned about the buffalo from, I don't know, when I was like 10 or something. And it was, they're the only animal that move into the heart of the storm. And Mm. that the quickest way again is through. And that's what gave me this role model of writing for whatever reason moved me toward my pain. And for whatever reason Mm -hmm. that relieved the pain a little bit, it just made it slightly manageable. Mm -hmm. And for the pain, I couldn't figure out what to do with it. I called putting a pin in it. Now you would call it just compartmentalize. I would just put a pin in it until I could learn what to do with it later. So your dad had been abused by his father. You'd say that if things didn't go his way or you woke him up, you'd have might gotten hit. And there was one poignant story that really stuck with me is that he hit you and your brother. You had to walk eight miles to school because you missed the bus with bloody noses and in the cold Alaska weather. And then he came to school with your lunches, almost looking ashamed. And that something awoke in you that you're saying, oh, I want to explain this to him. I want to connect the dots, which only enraged him again. And just that sequence, Jewel, captured the trauma bond in sheer perfection, that probably three, four hour sequence. He wakes up. He gets frustrated. He takes it out on you and your brother physically. He comes. He brings the lunch. Oh, maybe it's not so bad. I could forget that. That's it. That sequence is is the trauma-bonded relationship. And it's an almost impossible cycle to break out of. Yeah. And there was also what we would call gaslighting when I sat down with him on the couch and I was like, oh, my God, I think I see a pattern and I kind of see what happened and I see what's leading to this maybe for him and how it's affecting me. And mm-hmm, I probably mm-hmm. remind him of my mom. And I was so excited to share that with him. Yeah. And I think that having a young girl, you know, trying to explain your psychology not attractive to people. And he talked me out of my truth. And I didn't know better. I got confused. And that was one of the most traumatic. That more than being hit (laughs) was much more damaging to me because I went from feeling with certainty that Mm -hmm. I was seeing things correctly to doubting my own internal voice. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. that was a bitch to recover Mm -hmm, from. Like mm -hmm. I get chills talking about it. That took decades for me to figure out how to reinstate my own internal compass because mm-hmm. I began getting, it's funny now we have this term gaslight, mm-hmm. but I began getting getting gaslit by both of my parents to where my own truth and my own ability to navigate became quite obscured and caused a lot of pain for many decades. Uh, which is really what the legacy of this is. The bruises, the scratches, the wounds, they do heal, and our memory conveniently pushes that out. But that emotional loss of losing your sense of knowing what reality, basically, it can take a lifetime to, to heal from. How did you continue to cope with your home life as you grew up? I did move out at 15. I decided that it was just better to leave my dad than stay in this like intense arguing, fighting, physical dynamic and just go out on my own. Mm -hmm. I knew that statistically doing that was quite dangerous, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to cut my losses. And that's kind of how I've always been is like, can I do something different? Can I do better? How will I succeed? And so rather than kind of fixating on anger for my dad, which I had a lot of anger, I decided to put all of my resources into going, what makes me think I can move out at 15 and not become a drug addict or a prostitute? Because that's statistically what I should be, you know, destined to. And so I knew I had this genetic inheritance. I'd been learning about it in school. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a genetic inheritance that could give us a predisposition to diabetes or heart disease. Mm -hmm. But I saw this like an emotional inheritance. It was habits and emotional languaging Mm -hmm. 
that I was inheriting, and it was going to give me a predisposition to abuse, addiction, all kinds of things. And so what I realized I was up against was learning a new emotional language. And at least that felt like a clear objective. You know, I knew I, like, I could go to school to learn Spanish, but there was nowhere to learn a new emotional language. But at least knowing what I was up against felt like a clear objective. And so I went my own way. I didn't think I'd ever see him again. I didn't honestly care maybe if I ever saw him again. Mm -hmm. I felt like what I was up against was such a monumental and dangerous proposition that I just had to put all my resources to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How is your relationship with your father today? So my dad and I do have a good relationship Mm -hmm. now. All I can say is... I didn't try and heal him. I didn't try and save him. Not that I think it's bad, you know, each their own. I didn't know how to, and I just tried to focus on saving my own Mm -hmm. life, basically. Mm -hmm. My dad in his 60s, late 60s, got sober, and he Mm -hmm. wanted to figure out how to heal on his own. I think especially when my son was born, my dad really wanted to be involved, and he asked my permission. And, you know, I'm sorry is nice. Not a lot of people get I'm sorry. My dad did say I'm sorry. But it doesn't mean you get a relationship back. Changed behavior earns back relationships. And so you have to trust yourself and your real sight, and that really comes through healing. I had to trust my ability to perceive my dad for who and where he was now. And behavior is everything. His behavior was different. And it didn't come back to our relationship overnight, but through consistent changed behavior, I felt like it was worth having a relationship. I felt like it was not only safe for my son, but even beneficial. Mm -hmm. And so that's why my dad and I have a relationship. We met as two adults that had healed a lot. And that's a gift I certainly didn't think I'd be Mm -hmm. given in my Mm -hmm. life. But a lot of that is owed to my dad and owed to my own healing. Mm -hmm. You said something so, so important here, Jewel, which is changed behavior is what changes relationships. I'm sorry is nice, but that's not how you can actually move into another phase of your relationship. And I'm so, so happy for you that you and your father have been able to achieve that, that your son will reap the benefits of your father's healing. It's not the norm. And I think that will forever question, do I reconnect? Do I not reconnect? Is this going to set me back? But as you put it, that process of healing for you had to be you. This wasn't about, I have to heal for my dad because of my dad to convert my dad, but Jewel's going to go out and heal. You said both of your parents gaslighted you. And I want to go back to talking. You said your mom. I put a pin in that, Jewel, and I'm coming back using your (laughs) metaphor is that your mother left at eight years old. You know, when I close my eyes and I think of what eight is and my own daughters, it's so young. And she left you at eight, which is unfathomable to either of us as parents, right? To anyone who's a parent. Can you talk about that and what that entire relationship with your mother looked like? It's hard to describe. My dad's kind of a much more cut and dry case. Mm -hmm. Being hit hurts. It feels wrong. It looks wrong. A guy that yells and gets angry is an easy villain to identify. I don't think my dad's a villain, Mm -hmm. but it's easy to identify that. My mom was subtle. Yeah. And the abuse was a very different type. And it appeared as love and it appeared as gentleness and appeared as safety. And it was perfectly set up by the fact that the volatility of my dad made this contrast of this calm, quiet woman who never yelled who always said the right things, who said she loved me, who said I was incredible. I mean, you just, you run to that. 
not knowing that you're consuming poison. You know, when I look at both my parents, there's a great book called Traumatic Narcissism by Daniel Shaw. It's and my it really helped me. Isn't it wonderful? Preach. I mean, it is literally under my pillow. I've read it so many times. He's brilliant. It's wonderful work. Mm-hmm. And I want to make a really strong caveat. I am not diagnosing my parents. I've just read books that helped me understand my own personal experience. Yep. One of the most interesting things he said is when you're raised by a traumatic narcissist, you either become one or you get married to one, basically. I just sort of say that as a bit of perspective. Mm-hmm. Because what my mom did, I consider to be incredibly difficult and damaging. What I'm about to say about my mom is so inflammatory. It's easy (laughs) to make her into this huge villain. At the same time, I feel like somebody who was raised in an impossible circumstance by people who were raised in impossible circumstances Mm -hmm. by people who were raised in impossible circumstances. circumstances. But my mom is a complex psychological study. She's a very different animal than my dad. You know, so I went from this dad that hurts me to hitchhiking to Anchorage to see my mom as a 10-year-old to her saying, you know, you're so powerful. All people are so powerful. Our minds are so powerful. We only use 10% of our mind. I mean, imagine what all the other brain can do, I wonder. Like, I bet we're powerful enough to turn this light on and off with our mind. I mean, maybe. And I was like, wow, that's a cool thing to think about. And she's like, why don't you sit here and, like, stare at that light bulb and you know, see if it's possible. She's like, I really believe in you, which felt so good. And I sat there on the floor and I stared at a light bulb for four hours. And I felt loved, and I felt seen, and I felt safe. And what I didn't see is that I was being babysat by a light bulb. Okay. (laughs) By a mom that didn't really want to see me. So that's just a kind of good, tiny image into maybe the nature of our relationship and how that evolved to ultimately being something that became Mm-hmm. incredibly mm-hmm. psychologically damaging that I had to reckon with much later. It is interesting you brought up the topic of narcissism. I always tell everyone, narcissism in and of itself, Jewel, is not a diagnostic term. It's a description of a personality style. So I can tell you I'm introverted. It's not diagnostic. It's simply so who I am, how I go through the world. The word does not have a good connotation, but it's just merely a personality style that puts a person often at odds with other people. It's very selfish. They put their needs ahead of other people. It's not well-suited to parenting because of that. It's a concept I've talked about called multiple truths. Multiple things can be true of one person at a time. My mother made me feel special. My mother was fascinating. My mother believed in this power of the mind. My mother abandoned me. You know, there's a list of things your mom did. You have a list of things your dad did. And all of those things coexist. And so... Can you walk us through how that relationship then unfolded for you as you now went through adolescence and her presence in your life and then as you emerged into adulthood? Yeah. You know, there's my perspective at the time, which my mom was a saint. Yeah. My dad was a bad guy. Yeah. So real binary, real yeah. black and white. Mm-hmm. I realized with time much later that there was nothing wrong with me. I did what I was built to do. I attached to my mother. Correct. I was wired to do it. And so there was nothing wrong with me. There was something wrong with my mom's ability to attach. Right. And so with hindsight, you see the fault there, that there was a tremendous wound for both my parents. And this isn't permission for them having hurt me. And I think where healing gets difficult for a lot of people is we don't always know how to hold space and say the truth is 
These were hurt people. The truth is also it's not okay to hurt me. Correct. That's a difficult duality for people to inhabit. Yeah. People tend to want to throw the baby out with the bathwater or make people all bad mm-hmm. or all evil. Mm-hmm. And that isn't true. Mm-mm. Hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. And how we choose to hurt people because of our hurt has a lot to do with <laughs> our own hurt and tools and lack thereof. I have a line in one of my songs called Goodbye Alice in Wonderland where my love was turned against me like a knife. I loved my mom and I had a tremendous wound, a need, right? This gaping hunger that unexamined informed not only my worldview, but all of my choices and decisions. So this wound was actually causing me to be a puppet And my hands were moving and my actions were all being orchestrated by my wounds, by my hurt, by my need for love. And I didn't see it. I didn't see the strings that were my own wounding, my own desperate need for love. This is a beautifully crafted metaphor, the likes of which could have only come from such a gifted songwriter and poet. Jewel makes a brilliant point here. Our core wounds often guide us into treacherous situations and keep us stuck in unhealthy ones. When those wounds aren't explored and addressed, we can drift into unhealthy relationships and find it nearly impossible to cut the strings and free ourselves. We will be right back with this conversation. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. This is the thing that causes you to like be attracted to crappy, you know, relationships. This is the thing that causes us to make poor choices. Something my mom did, mm. and she figured out how to manipulate me in a very masterful and very subtle ways because my need for validation, my need for love, my need for her approval was so great that it was kind of like a great martial artist that learns to like use your own force and turn it against you. Uh, So she ended up becoming a co-manager and a manager. In her best-selling memoir, Never Broken, Jewel writes that she soon felt as though she couldn't make any decisions without her mother. She was manipulated into believing that all of her success was because of her mom. My mom had to do very little to get me to do more and more of what she wanted. My own need for love, my own need to have a mom, the overwhelming hurt and abandonment and all those things got used in a way that was... Sophisticated, very sophisticated, and kept me coming back to her. You know, she has a position and a perspective that is valuable because I don't trust my own perspective. That made a really dangerous dynamic that I Mm -hmm. never saw, that constantly was looking like this woman is a great guide, a great wisdom, great counsel, Mm -hmm. great spiritual person. And many, many people believed that about her as well. And 
it led to a really, you know, dangerous thing. Like when I got discovered while I was homeless at 18 and I remember calling her and saying, you wouldn't believe it, labels are coming. And she was like, oh my darling, let me come down and help you. That must be really overwhelming. <laughs> you know, if I could go back to one moment, you know, and have a do over, it might've been like, let's wait on that. Let's, <laughs> let me see if I can figure this out. Long story short, I woke up at 34 and had to come to terms with the fact that I had no money and that my mom wasn't who I thought she was. Jewel has said that while she was on the road touring, working around the clock, her mother was reaping the benefits, living a lavish lifestyle with a full staff tending to her every whim. In all, Jewel has estimated her mother embezzled about $100 million. How did you cope with that betrayal? I've had some very powerful moments in my life. Moving out at 15 was powerful. Mm -hmm. I learned skills that changed my life forever. Moving out into my car, because I wouldn't have sex with a boss, mm -hmm. I decided to live in my car instead. My car got stolen, and so I was homeless for a year. That was a powerful moment. These are these moments where you either break or you yeah. go, I fucking, I have this. I'm going to figure this out. And this was another one, this yeah. moment of I think I was 33, 34, whatever age I was. This was either going to break me irrevocably or I was going to figure it out. I never did therapy. I'm not saying that as a heroic gesture. <laughs> I just didn't have access when I was young. And when I was 34, I definitely would have had access. I had money. Mm -hmm. But I had been brainwashed. I had been so psychologically abused mm -hmm. that I didn't want anybody to have any access to my mind or my thoughts or have any influence. Mm -hmm. I needed to figure out how to restore my own sense of how to navigate my life. And I was taken down to a nub. I was dismantled psychologically. And I played a big part in it. I kept saying yes, and I kept taking apart pieces of myself. Mm -hmm. I participated. I didn't know what was me and what was her. And I do know that I actively engaged in tricking myself. I do know there was this voice in me yelling, and I kept suppressing it. And I get why. Like, I'm not trying to be hard on myself. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard this from survivors, this idea of tricking yourself. How did you begin to unwind that and work through that? I came out of this with so many tools I'd love to talk about. I think the mm -hmm. first thing I had to come to terms with is the truth wins. Mm -hmm. I willfully tricked myself about my mom. I wanted to believe she loved me. Mm -hmm. I wanted to believe she loved me so much. <laughs> But I did make myself a promise that the truth wins and that I would dedicate myself to seeing the truth, no matter how painful it was. Being willing to see the truth. And that's what I wrote Goodbye Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. You know, they, one of the last lines is, these are not tears in my eyes. It's me finally learning what's good in my life and what isn't. Basically, me learning to identify poison for the first time in my life. And I correctly identify it. Mm -hmm. So I began to trust my body. Yeah. My body was giving me experiences. And I could talk myself out of my body's experience yes. with my mind. You said you and your dad have a good relationship now. 
What about you and your mom? What has happened there? Because that was a much, it's a different kind of betrayal. You know, what happened with my dad was kind of just a, a surprise. Mind you, I don't expect him to be somebody he's not. I love my dad and I'm proud of him and we are close, but I don't think his and I relationship are probably what dad-daughter relationships are like. We're two adults that we have a lot to offer each other. But, you know, my dad isn't somebody I call for advice. When I'm hurt, my dad isn't somebody I call. And that's okay. So I just do kind of want to accept my dad for where he's at. Mm -hmm. And I make sure I get my mm -hmm. needs met and what my needs are. Mm -hmm. So I'm just not looking for my dad to be that guy, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I accept him where he's at, and it's healthy. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing harmful about no. it. But I'm not coming to it from a place of, like, these wounds still hoping that I get that yeah. thing from him. I figure out how to get those needs met. Yep. And the world is full of ways to meet those needs, mm -hmm. and that's the good news. So my mom, you know, the last time I saw her was 2003. It was in a lawyer's office. It's a scene that I describe in the book. Mm -hmm. She said, you know, I'm just so glad that I get to go back to just being your mom now. And I knew in that moment when she said that that I'd never see her again. Or I didn't think I would. And I haven't. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen my mom since that day. She never reached out. She did write me a letter when I was pregnant that said, you know, I'm always here to forgive you whenever you're ready. This classic gaslighting and manipulation technique is something I've heard from survivors time and again. It offers zero consideration for how the letter will affect the emotional well-being of the recipient, and in this instance, shows us how distorted forgiveness can get. People who betray us often twist reality to make us think we owe them an apology. Sometimes these moments can be used as a tool to confirm what we know to be true, as Jewel did, but it never stops being flabbergasting and often destabilizing. You know, what I did might seem extreme to people. There are all kinds of sure. ways to deal with this. This is just mine. I always cut my losses. Like when I felt like it became between death and staying with somebody, it took me way too long <laughs> to it takes, leave. It takes but everyone I did leave too long. Yeah. Fully. Right. And my job was just to learn how to heal. And it was a real thing to heal from. The most rebellious thing you can do. It is. It is. is figure yeah. out how to be happy. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. Yeah. And I had my work cut out for me. It was going to take all my resources, all my intellect, all my everything to figure out how the hell to recover because I wanted to be happy. I wanted to be able to love and have trust and resilience. Mm -hmm. And that was such a monumental thing that I didn't have time. Now, I did have anger. I did have mm -hmm. a, so mm -hmm. much stuff to work through. But I realized one day there was a story called the Allegory of the Golden Statue. A village had a golden statue. They heard a warring tribe was coming. They quickly covered the statue in layers of mud to obscure its value. The war came, the war went. There was devastation for generations. They didn't even think about the statue. Generations went by. There was a child playing at the feet of the statue after a rainstorm, and he saw this little chip revealing there was pure gold underneath this, what people had thought was a valueless statue. And for some reason, this image struck me. I canceled the tour. I quit everything to see how I could heal psychologically mm -hmm. from what had happened with my mom. I was at a ranch in Texas just figuring out what do I do and had this image come back to me. And it suddenly hit me. I'm not broken. 
I just need to do a loving archaeological dig back to who I am. I had been covered with layers of mud and spit and bruises and psychological programming to where I didn't know me from other. But I was existing purely, I believed, I choose to believe that I'm not broken. There's not something wrong with me. There is something right with me. And I had to get in touch with what was right with me. That is quite profound. How were you able to do that? I looked at that kind of like nature versus nurture. My nature was the gold statue and it existed. I had just been obscured through decades of trauma. And so I decided to use my body and my experience as truth and to trust it and to not talk myself out of my experience with my thoughts. And so that led me to realizing that my anxiety isn't my enemy, it's my ally. And this was probably one of the bigger things that I learned during that time. What if my anxiety wasn't this enemy that I needed to suppress and talk myself out of and disassociate from? What if it was something for me to listen to? What made me think of it was food poisoning. You know, if you eat bad fish, you throw up and you learn don't eat bad fish again. You shouldn't get mad at throwing up. You should thank throwing up because it was your body's way of saying you consumed mm -hmm. something that made you sick. It makes me so tender, I tear up. Anxiety was my best alarm system mm -hmm. letting me know I was consuming something that didn't agree with my nature. And that's how I began to deprogram myself. Mm. I had thousands of thoughts that were false. I had thousands of beliefs that were false. I had thousands of guilts and shames and decades of stuff that I was trying to figure out how to sort through. And I realized my anxiety was my compass mm -hmm. in a weird way. Mm -hmm. It's just one point on a mm -hmm. compass. But when I had a thought and it made me anxious, I would stop and I would write down, what was I thinking, feeling, or doing? Mm -hmm. And I would just move on. And then when I was consumed with more anxiety, I would write, what was I just thinking, feeling, or doing? Mm -hmm. And what I realized is those were thoughts, feelings, and actions that didn't agree with me. And was I willing mm -hmm. to stop consuming them yeah. and see if I became less anxious? Yeah. And so that's one of the first steps I took in learning how to deprogram myself, learning how to instill a compass in me, learning how to curate my thoughts and replace them with thoughts that did agree with me, like a soothing medicine almost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, these are decades I'm talking about. Yes, Sum yes, it all yeah, up. Yes, but, it's not something you're going to do in a week. But there's an axiom called the wicked teacher and... It says you become that which you resent. Yes. And that's the most powerful sentence when you look at what your choices are. If you've been betrayed, it's a fork in the road, you know, but choosing willfully in that one moment, no, I'm going to go right. I want to learn how to love and trust mm -hmm. and heal. Mm -hmm. And so every time I would be consumed with regret, resentment, just say, well, that's a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. It's a... Mm -hmm. It's the left road, and I want to take the right road mm -hmm. because I have enough to do on the right road. I have enough mm -hmm. to work on. Right. I think a lot of people, there is a, a family betrayal that persists, a pattern of behavior that persists, is people do feel anger. And one thing I do let people know is you feel as you feel. And the thing you need to trust about feeling is to never over-identify with feeling. There is no right or wrong feeling to have. You have the feeling you have and to never judge how you feel because that's the internalized judgment a person has always carried on. Yeah. And I, I want to touch on anger because... Um Choosing to go right doesn't mean you stop being angry. Right. Mm -hmm. It took me decades I'm sure. to I'm process sure, yeah. the anger. Mm -hmm. And I will have reserves for mm -hmm. life probably. <laughs> <laughs> 
For me, what I learned about anger is, right, mm-hmm. I should have been angry for what happened to me. That's mm-hmm, a, a sign mm-hmm, of health. Mm-hmm. Anger is typically a sign of health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think of it like a gunpowder blast. It's quick and it's intense. And it should create a tremendous amount of energy in your body to take an action. Yes. And so for me, it was like, I'm angry. What am I going to do with it? Yeah. And by constantly focusing on, okay, what am I going to do with this anger? My anger lets me know that a boundary has been crossed or that I crossed my own boundary or that I compromised or that I got compromised. It's very powerful. It's a good tool. You know, I was very angry at my mom. And then you have a choice. You know, will I fester, right? Because, hey, many nights did I stay up with circular thoughts, resenting, angry, locked in, and it is a poison. And it was my own mind. What am I now going to do? Now I have a lot of energy in my body. I would typically spiral in shame. I would lock into regret. I would go into self-loathing. I would lock into just mind-boggling resentment for my mom. And realizing those were all choices I was making. And could I do something else with this energy? Mm -hmm. Could Mm -hmm. I do something else with this anger? And so I do just want to highlight that Yeah, it isn't like this kind of mental, like, I'm just going to choose not to be angry and forgive. It is not like that. It's a dirty business. It is a dirty business. It is a dirty, gritty business. (laughs) And that for somebody that never knew how to love herself, that never knew how to champion myself, it was a process of learning that self-love was not staying up at night and doing that to myself, but saying, okay, but what am I going to do tomorrow Mm -hmm. that builds my life instead of tears it down? Mm So I hope that explains mm-hmm. that whole thing. It, it can does. sound like I was so heroic of like, I just chose <laughs> well, not to, I chose to go right. It isn't like that. <laughs> you were heroic um, and you were angry and you chose to go right. All of those things are true. Again, the multiple truths. I have to say, though, that scene with your mom, the 2003 one in the lawyer's office, it was absolutely chilling because here your mother has completely financially abused you, financially betrayed you. It hits even harder because of where you came from, where there wasn't enough. You really struggled financially. Your family struggled financially to have all that work and just passion and everything you did for it to at least the financial part of it to have gone away then for your mother to pivot and say I guess I have to go back to just being your mother which is really code for I guess that means I'm going to leave again was I mean it should personally it shook me to my core my question then becomes All of this is very complicated relationship you had with your mother. How has this impacted your process as a mother yourself? I love being a mom. So much to say about it. I highly recommend doing as much healing as you can before having a child, if you have that luxury or the option. If you didn't know you had stuff to heal from, it's okay. I believe that as I heal in front of my child— it's a healing for him. Yeah. And I can tell my son it's okay to make mistakes. But if I don't think it's okay for me to make mistakes, I'm sending a mixed message to my son. Yeah. Admitting you still need to heal, even as a parent, is admitting you're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And finding a way to hold some grace for yourself. And realizing that just modeling when I make mistakes for my son and I come clean, as it were, you know, that I'm like, you know what? I was really impatient. I was so patient. Oh, my gosh, I'm impatient. Like, I think I'm going to go for a walk. 
I got to go figure this out. He knows I'm impatient. Why would I tr- fool all of mm-hmm. us that I'm not? Obviously not over-involving him in my process yeah. or overly adulting my process, but just giving a voice to the truth. Yeah. Showing a process of how I handle it, that emotions are, my son has big feelings, you know, no shocker. He's like my mm-hmm. kid. What do we do with intense feelings? How do we manage them? Sometimes we catch them quick. Sometimes we don't notice them till a little too late. I love healing. I believe I'll be healing for the rest of my life. Yeah. I believe I'll be learning and growing the rest of my life. And I hope my son has an appetite for that. Mm-hmm. So the only way for him to kind of see is woof, the, the yeah. messiness as we do it. I am glad I healed a ton prior. Yeah. My conversation will continue after this break. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. The other thing I realized is again, I kind of talk about this nature and nurture, but because the way I loved my mom, I took refuge in that in a weird way. And it was that to remind myself constantly that I knew how to love. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. It was intact. And I had to really trust that and not see that as a negative with my son, but to embrace that. Mm-hmm. I was intact. I knew how mm-hmm. to love. Mm-hmm. And I could trust that nature in me. You know, having a newborn is very scary. You don't innately know how to breastfeed. It's not as intuitive as you all think, so it kind of threw me. And it was very dumb. I watched somehow a panda with a baby, and I was like— <laughs> I have this in me. I have to trust. I have this in me, even though I wasn't nurtured. Yeah. I have to yeah. trust in my bones, yeah. this ability to navigate this mm-hmm. and keep, and it. I had to have faith in that. And I had to keep fighting my way back to that love. And it's worked mm-hmm. out. <laughs> well, so it, far. it has worked out. And not only have you done that for your son, you're doing it for the world. And so I really want you to talk about your platform, Inner World, because it's an amazing resource. I know it's going to help so many people, Jules. So can you explain what it is? Thank you. Inner World is a mental health platform that's virtual. So you can use your iPad or your iPhone. You can even use like VR goggles if you Mm -hmm. want. And you come into a virtual community where it is completely safe. There are no trolls. There is no bullying. There is incredible moderation. And you can participate in a community where people are just hanging around like a campfire or Mm -hmm. these really neurologically calm settings. Mm And just find connection, which have tremendous network effects, right? It helps. Connection alone is wildly curative. Or you can actually attend classes in a peer-to-peer setting um, that are led by guides that are trained. Nice. And we have over 100 classes a week. Wow. Groups, yeah. We're already, like, we really scaled up the classes. They're specific around uh, living with anxiety, living with chronic illness. That's great living with depression, being a support person for somebody with an illness, living with agoraphobia or, you know, extreme social anxiety. You'll find 
you know, a lot of people even go to classes they don't think they need just mm. because you learn so much. It's all based on behavioral tools. Mm -hmm. So these are not therapists. These mm -hmm. are not PhDs. These are lay people that have been trained to lead classes. Mm -hmm. There is a ton still of oversight and moderation if, you know, somebody is for some reason having an acute trigger and is having acute suicidal ideation. We're not equipped for that. And so they can be removed to a private room and then helped because that's not what our platform is. But you'll learn tools. So let's say you go to a social anxiety meeting. You don't like going out. We had a woman that hadn't left home in four years. Mm -hmm. She was in weekly therapy. And we taught her a tool. It's called Solving Ahead. You write down what you want to do. She wanted to go to the grocery store. You say, what's the worst case scenario? Yeah. She wrote out her worst case scenario. What's your plan? I will call this person. I'm going to take my phone with me so I can stay on inner world mm -hmm. is what you know she wanted. She had that support system live. And then now let's see what's the best case scenario. Not that we get to control the outcome, but how could we influence it where maybe the best case scenario happens? Mm -hmm. What's your plan to kind of help influence us to hopefully have a good outcome? And then what's the most likely case scenario? It's usually somewhere in the middle. And then armed with that, people learn this behavioral tool. And I think in four months of our platform, she went out not only to grocery shop, but she ended up going to a concert with 5,000 oh, people. fantastic. And her therapist started coming into our oh, settings great. because she was like, oh, my gosh, like, how did my client, what tool was that? Mm -hmm. So that's what we do. You sign up. It's a free platform but has a premium subscription, so more mm -hmm. access to more meetings mm -hmm. and more supports. It's great. Um, this is as little as $8 a month. We wanted access for all. We wanted this highly affordable yeah. because, to me, the idea that people don't have access to these tools is unforgivable, <sighs> and we need to make them very readily mm -hmm. available. Well, I think it's an amazing resource. It is you also infusing you, what your process has been. Like you said, so, so complicated, but always plugged into healing that no matter what our backstories are, we're not defined by them. And if anything, they can really foster resilience. You talk about this idea that just because something bends doesn't mean that it breaks. And you're really a living monument to that idea that we can bend without breaking, even though we don't believe that. I'm so glad I had the opportunity to talk to you and get to know you and learn your story because I think it, and I know it informed what I share with survivors of really difficult historical intergenerational cycles and stories in their families and how to understand that you can always find your autonomy, your sense of who you are, and go and actually live into that full sense of you, but that there's going to always be some echoes of it. Like you said, some our wounds can cause us to be a puppet. What you showed us is that the marionette strings can be cut and that we can move forward, but it is a journey. And so again, we are, we're not only blessed with your music in the world, Jewel, I can say even more so now with your journey and your commitment to healing, not just for yourself, but for everyone in the world. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for what you do and giving a thoughtful place to yeah, discuss really complicated, very nuanced, very difficult nuanced. Yeah. Mm -hmm. things. And again, I would just emphasize, like, it's not always black and white. Mm -mm. It's it's um, a world of grays. And for me, my healing has been about what can I do? What can I do better today? Yep. Do I want to be mm -hmm. happy? Am I going to be accountable for it? And mm -hmm. if you are willing to do that, you know, I always tell people, they're like, healing is so hard and it's so painful. And it is. It is real work. Mm -hmm. But being dysfunctional is very painful yes. and a lot of work. Yes. It's just familiar. And it's there's familiar. no light at the end yeah. of that tunnel. Mm -hmm. So learning a new way, learning a new habit, learning a new way to think is so painful and hard. But at least there is a light potentially at the end of that tunnel. So 
Why not take that bet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. Thank Again, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Here are my takeaways from my conversation with Jewel. First, she talks about this idea of emotional inheritance and emotional language. When we think about inheritance and genetics of our psychology, we often think about psychological vulnerabilities or genetic vulnerabilities for mental illness. But this is something very different and very important for survivors. We learn to speak emotion the way we observe and are taught in childhood. We may have permission to express a range of emotion or we may be taught to use displacing emotional language or we may find ourselves completely silenced emotionally. Rage may be a frequently accessed emotion and sadness may be shamed. Growth and evolution past the limited emotional languages we are given in childhood often requires major work and shifts, especially for people whose emotional vocabularies were limited. Our emotional inheritances are intergenerational and reflect the traumas, losses, joys, and grief of generations past and become the foundation of our emotional languages. In our next takeaway, Jewel said that changed behavior is what earns back relationships. So many people in invalidating relationships are waiting for the I am sorry that rarely comes and that when it does come, folks may go all in again. But what Jewel shares here is actually a fundamental truth to hold on to in a narcissistic relationship as well. Even if you do get an apology, it's not enough. There must be behavior change, sustained and accountable behavior change. Any less, and we can all but guarantee that the old patterns are going to return again. For our next takeaway, while Jewel did endure multiple hardships and losses in childhood, that one of the worst was the theft of her inner compass through being gaslighted by both of her parents. And she highlights a particular situation when she connected the dots quite accurately and was told she was patently wrong. The loss of that compass means we are navigating without a compass as we emerge into adulthood and can leave us doubting our intuition and our perceptions. In this next takeaway, Jewel brought up an off-sided line, hurt people hurt people. Yes, they do. But Jewel's follow-up line is key. Hurt people hurt people, but it's not okay to hurt me. The hurt people spin often ends up feeling like a justification or an excuse. And while we can hold empathy for folks who have been hurt, it is not a free pass to keep hurting, but sadly, many people can view it that way. For this next takeaway, she shared two key tools that were instrumental in her healing, being willing to see the truth and identify poison and to listen to her anxiety. She viewed anxiety as a signal, which is an astute observation. Our anxiety can teach us about ourselves and how to take care of ourselves. However, that process of being willing to see the truth, that takes a while. It is about pulling out of the shadow of trauma bonding and enablers and see it. And to see the truth can also be a lonely place 
because most people don't. And in our last takeaway, Jewel calls healing rebellion, and that could not be more true. The invalidating, confusing, toxic, or narcissistic relationships can only persist if we do not heal. And when we start healing, these relationships also change. Healing is not an overnight dramatic experience. It is thousands of micro changes that bring you closer to your sense of self. And when you do that, you change the rules, the structure of these relationships, and the entire system. You probably never thought of yourself as a rebel, but each time you disengage or don't take the bait, that is exactly what you are. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.